hello and welcome to the Veer Vulnerabilis Veer podcast. I'm Adam Glinsky. And I'm Albert Imperato. Where we help men communicate and build empathy. All right, we got our double header on here today, Albert. So it's great coming up here. This is one of your very good friends. So I'm very excited to, to meet Dan, but I'm sure you have some really great things to talk about. So let's welcome to the show. Uh, well, I just want to tell you why we're talking to Dan. I, I'm not just purely into friend nepotism. Uh, <laughs> if Dan had nothing to say on the subject that we uh, deal with on this podcast, I would probably uh, respectfully tell him he can't come on the show. Uh, but actually, that's not true because Dan, I would bring on the show and say, you're just a regular guy who is a very warm, open dude and you know, one of my best friends now for what? How many years? Are, are 20, uh, man, 20 plus. I mean, 20, 21, 22. So, so Dan and I, Dan and I uh, met through the music industry. Uh, uh, I was a PR guy uh, working at a record company, and Dan worked at a major uh, artist management company. He managed some really important singers, and uh, we became friends. And I just would always see him backstage and talk to him. And he's like you, Adam. He's got this natural ebullience and high energy and sweetness. And you're both from Pittsburgh, so we could talk later about how jealous I am because you guys are going to become friends. You're not going to invite me <laughs> together to hang with you, and I'm going to be like dealing with some really serious issues later. But anyway, uh, Dan and I became uh, professional friends, and then we became you know more personal friends. And I'm actually uh, one of the, one of his uh, sons to godfathers, which is quite an honor. Um, but anyway, Dan um, Dan worked with, uh, at our uh, was one of the co-founders of my the company that I am still with, Twenty One C Media. And Dan, um, in the middle of the earlier years, um, basically changed course and went off and uh, went into this realm of uh, positive psychology. And he could tell you a little bit more detail about you know what what he does. But um, one of the, the things that just impressed the hell out of me is that I'm very Hey, I'm on this track, and I, I I tend to stay on a track. And when I watch Dan do something different, even though he loved opera and he loves music, uh, when I watched him take that new direction, it really opened my eyes up. It was kind of like, wow, Dan's Dan's also pretty courageous here. So, I I've really always been inspired by by Dan. He's kind of got a fearlessness to him, and, and for all his like I said, regular guyness, he's just a very warm. Uh, very loyal friend and a very supportive human being. He's a great, great person to talk to. So I'm going to let you introduce him from from the official bio, and then we'll we'll bring him in. Yeah. I think we should actually stop there because I sound really good, and we should just leave it at that. Call it a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> you got him, man. All right, no. we're good. <laughs> And I should probably warn you, Adam, he's a wise ass, so we're going to have to rein him in here a little bit. Hey, Pittsburghers, baby, Pittsburghers. We get each other. It's all right. Oh, yeah. No, I feel you 100%. But, hey, I want to read your bio. It's uh, really impressive. So, Dan, as a speaker, teacher, and a strength-based performance coach, Daniel Lerner is an expert in positive and performance psychologies. His key theme is developing a healthy psychological state that has a profound impact on the pursuit of excellence, a message that he brings to his students established in a high, high potential performing artists and athletes. He also helps with executives in Fortune 500 companies as well as startups worldwide. Lerner is a faculty member at the New York University and is on the teaching staff and the Mastered Applied Positive Psychology Program at the University of Pennsylvania. 
as a guest lecturer and regularly um, at different universities, universities across the country. The Science of Happiness is a course that he has co-taught over 6,000 students for the past nine years with Dr. Alan Schleichter. He is currently uh, the largest uh, and most popular non-required course teacher um, at NYU, uh, which is in great part due to the positive changes that students report throughout the semester. Lerner has studied closely with renowned sports psychologist, Dr. Nathaniel Zisner, a director in the Center of Enhanced Performance at the United States Military Academy at West Point. Focusing on coaching and performance enhancement techniques employed by professional and Olympic athletes, Daniel holds a master's degree in applied positive psychology from UPenn. His book, You Thrive, How to Succeed in College and Life, was released in the spring 2017 by Little Brown and Company. Daniel, you have a great, impressive resume there. Welcome to the show, unofficially, because you've already come in, and it's great <laughs> to have you on. Thanks, Adam. It's, a, it's really a pleasure to be here. Thanks, both of you. It's an amazing opportunity. And I got to say, just first off, I am uh, just totally in awe of what it is that you guys have been doing here. I mean, just just producing a podcast in and of itself, I think it's amazing. But what you've been offering to your listeners in terms of the stories and the profound insights that uh, that people share of their lives in terms of how, and how it helps others be able to open up, experience the world has been really, um, really quite uh, remarkable. So thank you for the for what you're doing. Uh, you're very welcome. We're we're happy to do it. <laughs> so so Dan, I remember when I told you about the podcast, you, you had the very funny response. You just said, "Of course, you're doing a podcast." Uh, I'm just curious. When we, Are when any of your about, listeners surprised? <laughs> yeah, I, I was thinking you probably thought it was maybe a, a classical music podcast, but you know when you heard what the podcast was, I'm just curious. V vulnerability. I just want to get right off the, the, the bat. I, I'm just curious what your initial reaction was and, and then get your take on what, is, what does that word really mean? So, you know, I, I don't know if I could say what it really means, but I can tell you what my initial reaction was. And I can, then, I, then I can tell you what it means to me. <laughs> um, so and I, I know clearly I'm saying this is like a, as a university faculty member, where I'm like, let's make sure that our definitions are precise. <laughs> um, so the first thing I think that came to mind for me was, was one word would be, would be bravery. Uh, because being able to be vulnerable uh, means being brave. And for, uh, you know, uh, and that clearly includes someone who's going to do, people who are going to do a podcast about vulnerability, which means you have to be super brave. It means you sort of have to, you have to be a role model or an exemplar for the other folks. And so, you know, you're kind of, um, you're, you're creating this space, but it also means that you need to be vulnerable yourself. That's the first thing I thought. And, you know, you know Albert, you, you talked about watching my career track and how it was, let, let's say, um, uh, hardly traditional. And yet, you know, you've done some really, taken some really brave steps yourself. So, you know, whether it's in music business or outside your other ventures and your other interests, a lot of them have been really brave moves. So it seems to me, it seemed to me when I heard about it that um, it wasn't a huge surprise not because clearly this is the next step, but because almost anything you did would be, for me, greeted with, oh, yeah, that's A, it's fascinating. B, it's good for other people. Um, C, you're cultivating a new community. And D, it's, it's, uh, it's totally the, the path less taken, right? So it didn't surprise me, but I thought it's a very, very brave thing to take on. Wow. Yeah. 
Thank you. I, I know there's going to be a lot of I love you, bro, moments in this in this podcast. <laughs> it's it's really the way. I love you, bro. <laughs> <laughs> it's really funny because because I didn't realize, you know, until I sat down to take some notes and to send to Adam. It's it's really different to talk to somebody in, in this format, you know, in a, in a podcast format. Um, you could talk to someone that you know forever, but it's really different to, to kind of drill down and, and get focused on on what's the the key things for the for, for us to discuss because we actually have people listening on their on the other end so we can't just you know just kind of float around but tell us just very briefly just a little bit about what you're currently doing in terms of the, the phrase positive psychology uh kind of def, just define a little bit your your current current roles that you have in this area sure so let's let's start with the definition of positive psychology so Ten years ago, if I talked about, if I mentioned the word positive psychology when I was in grad school, um, the kind of the the, the uh, sharp tongue remark response would be, "Oh, you mean it's not negative psychology?" You're like, "No, no, no, that's a fair. It's a bit of an asshole question, but it's a fair question." And like, and so people tend to think about psychology in terms of illness, right? We think about therapies, we think about how do I get rid of an illness I have, or a challenge I have, or stress, or anxiety, or depression that I have. Let's say a mental health challenge that I'm dealing with, and that's totally accurate. However, if you were to look at the history of psychology back in 1870, William James, Harvard, the whole thing, um, you were looking at the state of someone's state of mind, both in the negative and also in the positive. So James would, would study things like um, great men and the environment was the title of one of his. He looked at um, uh, genius. He would look at great marriages or great relationships. So it wasn't just illness. It was also well-being. And a lot of that went away. And we had tons of those things happening since the 1940s. World War II comes along. 99.9% .9 of the funding for research after World War II goes to the negatively oriented issues. Because you're this wave of soldiers coming back or not coming back and people suffering, post-traumatic stress. So all the research went to stress and depression and sadness and anxiety, understandably. And we've forgotten about what it means to study joy, happiness, um, transcendence, uh, positive relationships. And so, um, in the in the late '90s, a man named Martin Seligman, who um, who had, had gotten known for his work in, in learned helplessness or depression, became president of the American Psychological Association. And he said, "Look, the, the cake is half baked. We baked the part about illness. We baked the part about struggle. We baked the part about uh, stress and anxiety. But we haven't baked the part of what makes life worth living. The good, the good things, the happiness, the, the relationships." And he endeavored to bring together both scientists and funding to better understand um, what it looked like to have a life worth living, to thrive in life. And by doing so, when we understand it, we can replicate it or we can, we can help others. So, you know, positive psychology is really that other side of psychology. It's not that we want it to stand alone. It's not that we want it just to be everyone should be happy. because That's not realistic. And we'll talk about that right now um, or in this podcast. But we want it to be one psychology where you have both the challenges, but also the opportunities for well-being. So um, I teach a course called The Science of Happiness at NYU. Uh, as Adam said, I've, I've taught it um, for about nine years now. I teach it with one of my best friends in the world. He's an adolescent psychiatrist. And so our course, you know, as we tell our students, and Adam mentioned, it's a large course. Teach about 1,000 students a year, 500 in the classroom, in one classroom each semester. Um, the course is not just about happiness. And we tell our students early on, we lie to you. This course is not, it shouldn't be called the science of happiness. It should be called the science of well-being. But if we called the science of well-being, we'd have five of you in here instead of 500 of you in here. It'd be like, 
basically like me, you, and Adam sitting here in a class. <laughs> but, you know, and, and so why is that? It's because happiness is a part of well-being, but it's not the entirety of well-being. And so in this, in this course, we, we have topics such as positive emotions and relationships, meaning, purpose, passion, willpower, choice, but also stress and anxiety and cognitive behavioral therapy, because that shit's going to happen. So we have to understand that there are both sides. And so that's the work that I do at NYU is teaching these amazing students, uh, both the challenges and opportunities to well-being. Now, I, I also do a lot of speaking. I do 30 to 40 keynotes a year, and that ranges from um, universities to large corporate functions. Uh, and those can be either a general sense of well-being or more specific points. Let's talk about passion for now, right? And what's it look like? Much the science of it, the applicability. Like, look, there's healthy passions and unhealthy passions. How do you recognize them? How do you cultivate one? When you walk out of this room, I want you to know a few things to do, which is the same thing, again, we do in uh, our class as well. I want you to walk out not only knowing the data, but I want you to know what you can do to create change. Um, and then finally, I, I work with a bunch of clients, uh, and those clients can range from uh, professional musicians to, uh, as Adam read, corporate folks. Yeah. It's a very extensive career. You got uh, lots of faces and lots of different um, things going on. And, you know, at the heart of it is well being and balance. And uh, one of uh, our previous guests, uh, Ryan Daniel Beck, uh, spoke at length about balance and well-being. So what do you think are the biggest imbalances that your clients um, and your students have? Where do you uh, see the most opportunity for them to kind of level up? So it's a great question. And um, I'd have to say, and this is not an out because I'll certainly talk about it. It really depends on the client or student uh, or artist, however you want to, you know, whatever you want to name them. So I mentioned well-being before, and so the matrix that I use in the class, and I also use it just as a talk, as being able to put well-being into perspective for whether it's a client or a friend or anyone, or someone I met on the bus, uh, is this acronym, it's PERMA. And PERMA is an acronym that comes from Martin Seligman. I mentioned him before, kind of the father of positive psychology. He's been at UPenn for 50, seemingly 500 years. Uh, and he, PERMA stands for positive emotion. That's the P. The E is for engagement. The R is for relationships. The M is for meaning. And the A is for achievement or accomplishment. Now, this is hardly the only matrix for well-being. But I like this matrix because, because it gives us some balance. It gives us a sense of, uh, of what, what are the factors that might go into well-being. So let's look at them like buckets. I do not tell the students or anybody else, all these buckets should be overflowing. Because that's not reasonable. That's not, that's, it's, 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 not, um, uh, it's not realistic, but it does allow us to look at our lives and get a sense of how we're doing, right? So let's start with what works for somebody. So your question was, where's the greatest imbalance? Well, it depends on where you put your emphasis. For some of us, uh, achievement is huge. I think for a lot of people in our culture, certainly uh, college students who've gotten into top tier universities or any college student, they've worked really hard to get there. So achievement has been placed pretty high for many of them. Uh, and their bucket needs to be overflowing. Now, that's great. Getting straight A's and getting into great schools, whatever it might be. But if you don't have any of the R, if that bucket's bone dry, the relationships, and you have no one to share it with, it's really hard to be thriving, right? If you have, um, if relationships aren't going to be important to you, achievement might not be as important. But if you're getting nothing done, I mean, like, not, I don't mean just mean big, getting into college, getting a job. I mean, like, getting your laundry done, going shopping, like, doing the little things every day. It's really hard to be thriving. And so... Being able to understand that is important, but I think it also allows us to assess ourselves, which is to say that Adam, 
you are not going to have the same well-being profile as Albert is. Now, they might be similar. They might, you know, you both might have an equal weight in, in relationships or in meaning. But, you know, Albert might have a much, much greater need for achievement or a much lesser need for achievement. So it gives us a chance to sit back and say, why am I, still, why am I struggling right now? Well, let's look at those buckets. I'm busting my butt, doing great, great at work, meaningful work. I'm super engaged by it. Um, and I'm actually happy at work, but I have not left work for a long time. Or I've lived in the library. Uh, I have not made any time for friends. So, okay, let me take a look and see where I, oh, look at that. Relationships bone dry. So I think it, it depends on what we emphasize. If we are someone who values achievement tremendously, we're not doing that. Well, that's going to, that's going to weigh more heavily on us, you know? And so it gives us this idea of a more, um, complex, uh, matrix of well-being. It also allows us to understand who we are and where we find our own. Right on. I appreciate that that answer, Albert. Um, you have something to say? Yeah, I was going to say. Um, so, is a lot of what you do in talking to the students. I've only sat in on one of your classes. I loved it. It was a great. It was a great class. And I'm sorry I haven't come down more more often. Um, but I'm just curious if a lot of the emphasis of what you do is making the students or the people that you're giving your talks to have those tools to look at their own lives and actually see what those buckets look like to actually give them those are like tools right you're giving them uh, images in their mind and ideas to make them say oh wow that's that's not as compl complicated as i might have thought i was i was kind of overtaken by a general sense of not something not being right and you've kind of made it a little you're trying to make it clear um, there's a way to approach it. So is that, is that, is that kind of a big part of what you do? Yeah, I think that being able to find some clarity, look, for anyone out, for most listeners out there, I don't want to say anyone, uh, that would be a little self-helpy, but like, you know, for most listeners out there, um, think about this. If you have one issue in your life, right? Um, let's say you're having trouble with your relationship. Okay. That's the only thing that's challenging. You can, you can address that. If you have an issue with your relationship and, and your job, does it feel like two things? Uh, it starts to feel like four things, right? You, got, you add one more issue in there and it feels like it's, it's this totally chaotic thing. It's three issues, but it's a lot because we can only focus on a certain amount of things at a time. So I think sometimes being able to kind of simplify things so we can address one at a time and understand them and go, okay, wait a second. I actually have other things that are happening that are good for me, but like, let's focus on these three things that are challenging allows us to get a handle on it. We get a sense of ownership in a way. It's an agency that we can that we can make a difference. So I think that's that's number one. It's almost like stripping away all of the bullshit and be like, okay, what's what are the issues I'm facing? I would say that the tools um, are the next steps, which are you know what we what we'll offer in class, what I'll offer with clients, what I'll offer with friends uh, are empirically or scientifically based interventions, basically exercises that we've seen replicated over and over can raise our level of positive emotion, can, can help us develop better relationships, can help us explore meaning. I mean, they're like, I have some, I have some colleagues at UPenn who have looked at meaning and like you ask, they've asked two questions of people and that those people include firefighters and teachers and nurses and executives, you know, and those two questions can lead to higher levels of meaning. So if we're talking to somebody and they're like, I feel like there's something meaningful in my life, by the way, I'll define meaning as um, something greater than myself. Right, a connection to something larger than myself. If I'm feeling that way and that's where my bucket's dry, what the hell am I supposed to do about it? Well, we actually have some, some good scientifically sound exercises which can help raise that. 
those are what I say the, the tools end up my, I want to give them a toolkit. So they walk away from me and they're like, oh, meaning is my issue right now. I haven't seen Dan in a year. Let me go through this. Oh, relationships, let me go, or emotions. Oh, let me go through this. So they got a sense both of what the issue might be and then how they can address that issue. Well, I was really psyched for you to, um, to meet Adam. I do know that you guys shared this Pittsburgh, this Pittsburgh background. Um, I'm getting a Pittsburgh profile because all the people I know from Pittsburgh are just really beautiful people. Uh, I, I, I could give other shout outs, uh, but also, you know, Adam, Adam is kind of interested in, and does a lot of studying in, in areas that are similar and related, uh, similar and related. And I, I often from both of you, I've gotten very helpful, useful uh, things that I kind of use and rely on, um, you know, whether it's, you know, Adam kind of leading me towards a little more meditation uh, stuff that I've been doing on a daily basis now for a while. Uh, you, Dan, you're like, a, a, you know, you're, you fill me with so many different, I, I have little Danisms that are constantly pop, <laughs> popping into my brain. Um, so, so, you know, thinking about, uh, about the audience there, Dan, what are, what are some of the like sort of orienting things you can give us to, to have people begin to ask the right questions about identifying where they're at now and, and thinking about where they might, re- might want to go uh, as they look forward and, and to making their life more rich and, ha- and, and filling more of those buckets? What are, is, is sort of a, 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 fir- a couple of first steps for, for someone maybe who's not really begun to, 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 to move in that, the direction that they want? So there are a couple of different ways to do it. It really depends. You know, let, let's start with the assessment of where we are right now. So we can certainly work with something like, like a PERMA profiler, which is a psychometric assessment tool that you can find online for free. I think it's, um, I, I will double check this. I think it's authentichappiness.org. It's, it's, a, it's a website based at the University of Pennsylvania, which gives us a bunch of tools um, that, that can give us some feedback on where we are, right? Some sort of evidence-based tools. Uh, and I think that, that can often be a good start. Um, getting that kind of information can be helpful because it, it gives you a sense of what's not just self-assessed, but what, um, what we can look at from different perspectives. I think often sharing that with others can be helpful too. Now we're talking about vulnerability clearly, but let's say for example, the character strengths assessment, which you can find on there. When you hand your character strengths assessment, which is strength, strength of character are not, I'm good at talking to people or I'm good at, um, organization, it's strength of character mean, meaning um, what do I lead with as a human being that helps me be engaged. So uh, strength of character could be love and the capacity to be loved. It could be kindness. It could be bravery. It could be justice. It could be love of learning. Um, when we hand that report to somebody else and say, all right, so these are my top five. I'm not really seeing them, or I'd be curious to know your perspective. Getting feedback from other people can be really helpful too, uh, and getting a sense of how do they see us in terms of those strengths. Um, so there are lots of different ways to get it, both by taking assessments or by sitting down and really on a scale, let's make it super simple. Scale of one to 10, PERMA, where, you know, how often do I feel a sense of positive emotion? Right? Like if, if that is a three, okay. You know, if your question is engagement, one to 10, engagement being, um, the ability to sort of, there's people think about it like, like flow or being in the zone. Um, then where am I from one to 10? How often do I get into that zone? How often am I engaged at work or in a hobby or somewhere else? And that's a nine. Great. You know, and you can go through that perma list and get a sense of sort of where your strengths are and where you have some work to do. 
right? And that, that can be helpful. I like to quantify things as best I can. So if you get that three in positive emotions, don't shoot for a 10 because you're bound to fail. Question for me would be, what's a five look like to you? If you're currently a three in positive emotion, what does a five look like, right? Don't just go for one, maybe go for two and then see what that is. Um, same, same throughout, where are your lower numbers? But also, and I would emphasize this really strongly, uh, don't ignore the higher numbers. If you find that your engagement is a nine, make sure you do some of that shit with some frequency, right? It's not about fixing all your problems. It's about you know, balancing out the opportunities to, to improve in, in a certain area, but also making the most of those areas that do bring you well-being. So it's a balance that way. Um, so I think that can be, that can be really helpful. One to 10 on each one. Where am I? What do I need to do? Um, what would it look like? Right. For the future, the future is an interesting thing. And whenever I think about the future, I think about Dan Gilbert. Dan Gilbert is one of my kind of role models. He wrote a book called Stumbling on Happiness a number of years ago. He's been a professor at Harvard of psych for many, many years. Um, and his, one of the principles in his book is he says, look, human beings are the only animals that think about the future. Right? I mean, not, not including squirrels, and I'm going to need nuts when it gets cold, but like complex questions about the future. The problem with human beings, as he says, is that we're really bad at it. Right? We think that something's going to make us happy, right? And so let's say, uh, generic example, I want to be a CEO in 10 years. Great. So you bust your hump to be a CEO in 10 years, and you get there, and two things. One is, you're like, this is not what I thought being a CEO would be like. Like, it's way more stressful than I thought, way busier than I thought, so on and so forth. That's number one. Number two, you get there and you're like, oh, shit, I'm not the same person who I was 10 years ago, right? So, you know, we have these issues. 10 years ago, maybe that would have been fine, but not anymore. Not, not, not that I have a partner or a family or other interests. Like, that's not me anymore. So we don't tend to take account of what's happening along the road. And that can be a big issue as well. So I think perma being one, but also living in the moment. You referenced Adam and meditation. Mindfulness, I think, is a great tool. You got to get a sense of where am I right now? As opposed to waking up 10 years from now and being like, I'm here. Oh, shit. This is not where I want to be. Right. And that's, I think, it's been helpful for me in terms of my own path and making decisions, knowing that I want to get a sense of where I am right now and what's interesting to me. Dan, when you're a teacher, um, is there a challenge in this needs to be a certain sort of objectivity and science based to what you do, but there's also you, the person. And is there, is there a really tall wall between a, a teacher and a student where you have to be careful that you don't personalize it too much? Or, you know, you kind of mentioned that your own vulnerability is something that you bring into the classroom. Um, I'm just wondering if you ever get pushback from other from maybe another teacher or a partner, or even from some of the students, uh, I'm just I'm curious how do you how do you keep that balance in in talking? You know, th these are personal issues that you're dealing with. These are very personal issues. Sure. So that's a great question, and um, I do think vulnerability can be really powerful in a classroom and or in a session with a client, and, and for many for all of us, most of us, with a friend. Um, so let's take the classroom as an example. I can give my students data all day long. I can give them data on what it looks like to have well-being. I can give them data on what it looks like to be suffering. Uh, uh, I can give them data on what therapy is. But that's not going to 
bring it to life for them, uh, like the story is. So from a purely uh, from a purely practical perspective, you know, research shows that data embedded in stories is about 22 times stickier than bullet-pointed data. So for example, if I were to say to you, 77% of college students don't believe that therapy is effective, but that 53% of them find substantial benefits between sessions one and eight, and that one-third of all college students are currently um, addressing their issues in some sort of therapy, right? Well, that might be interesting. It might stick with you. It might not. But when Alan, my, my, my colleague, my, my co-author, co-teacher, the whole thing, when he tells a story about being in college and how he ended up in therapy because his grandfather had passed and no one understood it when he got back and no one was there for him. And then the girl that he had a crush on uh, started dating his roommate. And it was like, and he was in pre-med and he was just suffering, suffering, suffering. When he really shares that story, you, you can hear a pin drop in that room. Uh, there's not a computer open, which is really hard to do with 500 college students. And by the, by the end, when we're sharing that data, you can see a lot of them writing it down. Like, oh, this is, maybe this is time for me to go check this out. Or maybe my roommate needs this, or my friend, or my parent, or my sibling needs this. So vulnerability, whether it's his story there, or my story about, um, say, trials and tribulations with, with my son, um, sort of having a, a medical issue at one point. Um, they listen and they're there. And I think it allows them to see that we're human beings uh, who are, who can, they can relate to. And it allows them to also address issues that otherwise we couldn't. So for example, I can ask them who in the room has been stressed out. And I do first day of class and almost every hand goes up, you know, and I'll say to them, all right, look around and the eyes get wide as saucers. I'm like, oh my God, I thought I was the only one. But I can't ask them who's been clinically depressed. That would be um, unethical, right? Uh, so I don't. But if we can share a story about depression and then talk about some data and ways to address it, then it's very different because they can start identifying with it. And that, that's a big change. You know, they listen very differently. We'll go back to... Um a moment uh, in our, our friendship. Um, you know, when you, when we started this company, uh, 21C Media, when we started our music promotion company, I, you know, I just mentioned um, earlier, it was real inspiration to me that you had, you were on the same track as me to a certain degree. You, you know, we were literally on the same track. Can I, can I say something really quick? I'm so sorry. Sure. I'm sorry to interrupt you. Can I continue on? Can I finish up just a thought on the last? On the last yeah, go ahead. Okay. So here's the thing about vulnerability, is that when you can role model vulnerability, often it gives others license to be vulnerable. And so when I mentioned the idea of having people raise their hands, who here has been stressed out, and they look around and they see it, that moment changes everything in the classroom, because they will start opening up, or at least more of them will start opening up um, for the rest of the semester. When they see someone else willing to raise their hand, and then if I ask them, what stresses you out? And someone in the front row goes, I'm super stressed out by social comparison. Ever since I got to college, I'm constantly looking around, trying to be better than, who's better than, dressed better than, walking differently, more beautiful than, more handsome than, whatever it might be. And when that person in the front row says it, you see other people nodding. And you see other someone in the back sometimes saying, I totally hear you on that. These are things that they didn't really, they thought they were the only ones. 
And I think that's a, it's a really important thing is I might say, I'll tell you what stresses me out and I'll share it with them. I'm going to be totally honest. It can be a really personal thing. Um, but when, and it gives them license to say it. And when they say it, you see it spread. And that is really special. And you can do that in students. I do it with, with professional groups. I do it with whole groups of folks I'm speaking with. And I do it in my own personal life. So I'm going to be totally honest with you. And often you see that reflected. Sorry to interrupt. So go no, ahead. No, that was really good. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, well, I just want to get to that, to that point where, you know, we were working together uh, on this new business venture. And, uh, you know, you, you, we literally were on the same track. We were in the same train at that point. It was, this, you know, working for the same company. And I, I, I told you it was a great inspiration watching you get off that track and kind of go on a different track. And, and I'm just wondering what are some of the, the things that happened at that time that you went through and look back and say, wow, that was a really, that was a really big moment in my life. What were some of the, the, the fear elements that were there of, of saying, okay, I'm not going to stick with just music. I'm going a different way. But also what are some of the ways for people who are listening to say, Hey, you know what? I really actually want to go on a different track. How do we go from that point of wanting something that's a little scary to actually taking that step? Is there, is there a couple, couple of things you could talk about? Yeah, for sure. I mean, so I'll, I'll, I left, I originally left the music business in 1999 after having spent seven years as, as you mentioned, as, as an agent. And there were, there were really two things that happened that, that made me alter course there. And they're related to your question about taking the next step after our company. Um, I was seeing really interesting divide between clients that I was working with. Everyone was successful, right? It was, it was a big talent agency, like one of the big three, Everyone's working. Everyone's making money. Everyone's doing well. But some of them um, were happy. And some of them weren't. <laughs> um, and it ranged, clearly. I don't want to say it's black and white. Some were really living amazingly fulfilling lives. Some were happy. Some were uh, kind of struggling. Some were really miserable. And I thought, what's going on? Like, these people have worked so hard, and they are so successful. And yet, only half of them sort of tip on the side of living fulfilling lives. I wanted to understand what was happening there. I also want to understand if it was, if it, if it mattered to their performance, they were happy or not. So that was number one. That sort of, that sparked something in me. Number two is that one of my specialties was young performers. I say young, I mean in their 20s, because opera singers really don't, um, as you might know from, from that wonderful uh, podcast deal with Michael, um, it's a process. Much, it can be a much longer process to develop your career, your voice, your art, your skills, because there's so much to dive into. And I would see two people who were equal, seemingly equal talent. Two people come to mind who were both in the Met Young Artist program at the same time, one of which we signed and the other one went somewhere else. And this has nothing to do with who signed them. But they were both really good-looking, talented, kind of next-generation performers for opera. And one shot to the top and the other one took the nosedive. I was like, what's going on here? I knew they were both talented. So I figured it had to be above the neck. It had to be something psychological. And I wanted to know, in part because my parents were both professional musicians, and I really cared about the lives of, of performers. It was important to me to know whether they were thriving, fulfilled, so on and so forth, in addition to, are they talented? But I'd say the third thing, and this is the most vulnerable one, it's not, and so when I talk about least of all, I don't do it in my class yet, in part because I don't think they'll get it 
because they're 18 and 19. Um, but I've, I've shared another context and it's not necessarily the most professional one, but it's, uh, it was a moment, 1997, I think, um, when I, I picked up the phone at the office and it was my mother and, um, and she was weeping and she, she asked to talk to my boss. I said, of course, what's up? She's going, I just need to talk to your boss. And I was very close to my boss, Caroline, very close to her. And I went over and I said, my mom wants to talk to you. And she closed the door and she came out and she said, come into my office. And I went in and took the phone. My mother's first words were, I have cancer. And I remember thinking, the, that very moment, I remember thinking, I, 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 was, I loved my work, by the way. I loved it. And I remember thinking, I'm not going to be doing this much longer anymore. Because I realized there was something bigger that I was meant to explore. So that stuck with me. And, and, and from that moment on, I, was, I started thinking, what is that other thing? And it very much became performance, happiness, well-being, thriving. And I think it's because I realized for the first time in a way that life is short. And we don't know. So, so what are we going to do in order to explore as best we can? So when I left, in, in 99, it was with this, I had absolutely no idea what I was going to do. You know, I was writing like little things for Time Out Magazine. I wrote some liner notes for like for, you know, for, for a year old company. Um, and then, and I remember you calling me and you said, you know, how's it going? And I was like, I'm actually really happy. I'm totally broke, but like, but I'm, but I'm doing pretty well. And you brought the idea of, of starting a company. And I thought this is great. I get to work with someone I love, you know, with people I love, you know, the other folks too. Doing with, with on a topic that I adore, which is classical music and music and musicians and helping people uh, engage with that and bring it to the public. Um, and so I was really looking forward to that. And I got there and I realized, you know, uh, over the course of the next three years, this is not why I left the business originally. I left the business to explore something else. And so you and I had that conversation. I was like, this is an amazing thing. It's been such a wonderful, and it was. And by, by the way, to be honest with you, my parents were like, Dan, what the fuck are you doing? I said, my dad more than anyone else. Can I, can I use that word on this, on this podcast? Yeah, you're good. Fuck yeah. All right. So, all right. So, um, <laughs> so my dad was like, what are you doing? Like, I had done really well in the music business. And he was like, what's wrong with you? And my mom was like, she was, you know, she was much more sort of open that way. She's like, well, if you're not happy, you got to do something else. So I, I just, I realized I can't do this. I couldn't do the agent thing for the rest of my life. I couldn't do, you know, as, as wonderful as certain things were, it still wasn't fulfilling me. And then working with you guys is fulfilling us so much that well, that was in many ways. I knew it wasn't it. So I left and I didn't know what I was going to do next. And so I really didn't figure that out for the next five years. And so that journey was not an easy journey, but, you know, to, to address the second part of your question, what can people do? And sort of what did I learn there? You know, what, I guess what I learned there, and, and this is through the lens of a lot of the, the research that I've, been immersed myself, that I've been immersing myself in, is pursue those things that you find interesting. Right? Now, it doesn't mean that if, if you're sitting there thinking, I'm interested in French. I'm not like move to France. Like that's not, that's not the answer. Like don't dive in 173%, but take a French class. Um, you might find yourself uh, following up with another sort of 
step towards French, another sort of step towards um, tennis or whatever it is you're interested in. And, and what, I, what I found is in the research, passions, which people tend to over, overwhelmingly think are these thunderbolt moments. Bam, I knew right then that I was going to go into medicine because I passed someone on the street and they were sick and I wanted to help them. I couldn't. Those, those things don't happen very often. Like I walk by a guitar store and I'm like, bam, I'm going to be the greatest guitar player of all time. Said nobody ever, um, except maybe Jimi Hendrix, right? Like, you know, it doesn't happen very often. Passions, and this comes from research, University of Montreal, they take about three years to develop. And they start with sparks. Ooh, that looks interesting. I do like to cook. I'm going to cook a bit more. Maybe I'll challenge myself to figure out more challenging recipes. You don't become a professional chef the next day. But if you pursue that in a way that fits with your life, you might find yourself either cooking really well for your family or friends or pursuing it as a profession three or four or five years down the line. And you've done so in a way that's been healthier, right? You've allowed lots of different factors to come into play in your life. And that, and that can be a really healthy thing. So what are, what are those things that you're interested in? Are you spending enough time with them? Are you spending any time with them? Because if you're not, that can be a big red flag. And if you are, understand that patience can be a huge, hugely advantageous in our development of a healthy passion. I absolutely love that, Dan, because that is so easy and clear cut to live with. Like, I'm interested. I'm going to do this thing that I'm interested in. And, you know, you actually always, always point things out to me that I just don't really see in myself. Like, I love people. And I just didn't quite understand that that was actually driving so much of what I was doing. And you would just say, but dude, that's who you are. You love communicating with people. That's your personality. And I was like, oh, wow. So it's not, it's not as big of a mystery. And that's one of the reasons I've been having so much fun with this podcast um, is now it's actually putting to the, to the fore that I have an interest in people and, you know, I'm like, Little by little, you know, I just met, I did started doing my my Instagram feed and I met Adam. Adam and I started talking about a podcast and now we're, you know, 15 episodes in. And if you if we had just said, like, you know, when we first met Adam, like, we're going to do this thing. It, it just kind of grew out of just incrementally out of what we're what we were doing. So I really I think that's a really great, um, you know, every once in a while people will, will send me a, a, a message and they seem, they're just like, Albert, I just feel so overwhelmed by everything. I feel so bogged down. And that, what you just said is really, really useful. Like do something, you know, take 20 minutes today, even if it's take a walk around the block. Uh, that's a start. That's 20 more minutes than uh, you might've done the day before uh, at taking, taking more of a, a look at, at what you need to be happy. Um, Another another thing that oh, you. And, and by the way, sorry, me, go ahead, Dan. Let me tack on to that. I, I would say, you know, I think it addresses your question about the future before, which you know, and we talked about how bad we are predicting the future. You know, also I think it addresses the question of how do you how do you create a path in life that is that is true to who you are. You know, so if if I would ask you ten years ago, well, there weren't podcasts ten years ago, but you know, um, if we would have described it, it might have sounded good. If we were to say this could be something that could be part of your professional future, it would seem kind of almost impossible, right? But 
a lot of what this process has been is figuring out, oh, I like talking to people. Oh, I'm interested in, in people who are open and who are vulnerable and who are curious. And you, know, you can fill in the blank there. But that, that is a process. And you know, even right now, what I do for a living, I can't, the number one question I get from students about you know, when we sit down is, so I, I, can you tell me how you got here? I'm like, well, I kind of have to break it down. Because for a lot of my colleagues, it's, oh, yeah, I went to undergrad, I went to grad school, got a PhD, went to the university system, boom. And for a lot of kids, a lot of students are like, no, 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 no. And, it, you know, and it's, it's very similar, I think, to, to us people, you know, who are in their 30s, 40s, 50s, you, you name it, you know, to go, I couldn't possibly change, alter course now or, or change um, in such a big way. Big change does not need to start big. It needs to start small. And as you develop these questions and processes, you build into something where you look back and go, five years ago, I could never have imagined that I would be doing a podcast with Adam Glinsky about vulnerability, you know, or any of these things. It builds slowly. And, and knowing that this is part of the process, hopefully is helpful. Yeah. Um, one thing I recently posted on was like, you know, trying to be 5% better, just a little smidge on that. And it's like, what, what can you do today to do just a little bit more than yesterday? And, you know, just like Albert and I were talking about in a previous podcast, it's like, we've really grown through the process and a lot of our motivation and a lot of our inspiration has developed through our actual actions and doing it, you know? I've never done a podcast before I met Albert and I was just like, let's do it. And we just dived right into it one episode at a time. And, you know, we've developed it. We've gotten, you know, way better asking questions and kind of figuring out this whole thing. And I think another part is, you know, you'll find quite a bit more of your inspiration, motivation and discipline by actually doing it. So actually taking that first step, you know, for the French thing is like, take the French class if you like it, great. I'm sure you'll go to French too. Um, and if you don't, you're like, yeah, this is not for me. Um, so jumping right in and then sort of just beating your your yesterday self and trying to say, hey, what can I do a little bit better today, a little bit more focused? So, I mean, I agree with you wholeheartedly on all those aspects. And look, it's, it's certainly not easy. I mean, I, you know, I think we're on the same page. It's not easy for folks in part because in this culture, we are taught we are told, we are shown that excellence or success is, over, is an overnight thing. I mean, that is the story of American Idol. You know, Adam Lambert, as far as they're concerned, Adam Lambert basically had never sung until he walked onto that stage. Right? Taylor Swift picked up a guitar the day before she recorded her first album. And you're like, no, man, he's been singing forever, and she's been loving music and since she was eight years old. Like, but we're not told that backstory, you know? And when we hear that backstory, we're like, oh, it was a long path. That's realistic. So go back to your French idea. Hey, if I'm not fluent in two weeks, well, clearly I'm an idiot. No one's fluent in two weeks. And if, and if you, that's what you buy into, you know, no one is great in two months. So to your point, who am I comparing myself to? Let's, let's compare myself to me, as you said yesterday. And whether it's 5% happier, what does that mean? You have to define it. But, you know, what is 5% better French? What does that look like for you? Is your accent better? Is, are, you, are your verbs conjugated more clearly? Define that for yourself because then you can walk away with a sense of victory. Oh, you know what? My accent's better based on what my teacher told me. That's what it is. So one thing at a time, a sense of, of mastery comes slowly. But, man, it feels good unless your expectations are by tomorrow I will be playing in the NBA, even though I'm a five foot nine 
48 year old, you know, guy. Um, not going to happen. Maybe I can improve my jumper from outside the arc at the, at the local Y. You know what I'm saying? So yeah. <laughs> yeah. Dan, I always had a, a little bit of an insecurity being in the music business for as long as I've been, having never taken a music class and not studied music at all. And, and I remember one time you were talking, you were talking about expertise and how many hours you have to study something and just and, and pursue something until you're, you're kind of just by the nature of having done it a bit, a bit of an expert. And I, I kind of, that was really hugely helpful to me because I, yeah, sure. I still can't open an orchestral score and talk with a, a client about how rapidly to accelerate a certain passage, uh, you know, et cetera. That's okay. But my, I have other expertise that's come from just doing, doing my thing. And it's just a different, it's a different focus about communicating, telling stories about music, uh, about career paths. I mean, stuff that I've, I've been able to do day to day. So you, you helped me actually become much, a lot more, feel a lot more secure about what I brought to the table as a, as a music promoter. Well, you know, I guess, you know, Albert, you know, and again, we're going to have like these love you dude moments, but um, one of the things that's been so inspiring for, for me to watch Albert over the years is that he did this. He took something he loved, which in no way was associated with his family or his background, you know, and me coming from a, you know, a family of professional classical musicians to watch this was so fascinating. And when Albert came to Pittsburgh after my mother passed, and spent the time with my father, watching their conversation was, I, I will never forget that. Because my dad turned to me and basically was like, how does he know so much? <laughs> because, you know, my dad, a classically trained orchestral musician in Pittsburgh Symphony, who had surrounded himself with these things. But so would Albert. He had surrounded himself with these people who, gave, who, who he could listen to and also give, he could bounce his own ideas off of, who he was writing with and for and sharing ideas with. You had trained yourself in a very different way. And I think that comes into play back to what Adam was saying, which is, do we need to go back to school to become, uh, to, become to, to develop expertise in certain areas? If you're a heart surgeon, it's probably a really good idea, right? But if you're learning to play the guitar or, and you want to just get better, then just find find a teacher and get good feedback from them. Like, so you know I'm getting better. Or find a, a bunch of other guitarists who you enjoy playing with and you can, you can bounce ideas. It's just about being able to improve you know, based on what you enjoy, it doesn't mean you have to go to a certain track, you know, and Albert, I think you're, you're living proof of that. Adam, you're, you're by definition, you are a genius. It didn't happen overnight. It didn't happen overnight, right? You didn't step in and like, go oh, look at me. You're like, no, no, no. You're going to be around other people who you can learn from. I can learn from you. You're going to, you know, it's this process that we can immerse ourselves into in so many different ways. And it doesn't have to be one way. Adam, to be an Apple genius, like what, what, what's involved? Is it X amount of time in the store? Plus you have to take some classes. I mean, how do you actually become, I mean, if you can give us a short answer, I would love to know, how do you become a genius? Yeah, totally. So I was, um, I was brought on. Um, there's uh, three levels of like technical. Um, there's like one, two, and three. And genius is like level three. And basically you start in as a specialist um, and then you become an expert and then you become a genius. And there are different exams that you have to take. There's different, um, you know, metrics that you have to hit. You like, you know, you can't be, you know, getting, you know, <laughs> having people yell at you and writing you bad reviews all the time and get promoted. So and then you also have to show leadership as well um, and help develop uh, the people around you. So by being able to, you know, hit good metrics, um, pass the exams that I needed to take, and as well as be a leader in the store, um, that's how I progressed through my uh, professional career. Very cool. And 
I mean, I know you guys are going to connect offline because you, you guys have a lot of overlapping points besides just the Pittsburgh connection. Dan, I, I was flipping through the notes that you sent me. There was one other really, really powerful thing. Uh, you mentioned the, uh, the gift of our vulnerability, how, you know, that thing that we're so scared to share, scaring it, uh, sharing it may actually be one of the most powerful things that we can give. Uh, can you can you just kind of go into a little detail there? Because that that kind of took took me kind of gave me a little jolt. Sure, sure, sure. No, so I mean, so, um, I, I I guess I look at that two different ways. Uh, so the gift for me is, is a, a multi. It, it, it comes. It has. It's a loaded word. The gift, uh, in part because I think that I've always been fascinated by people who. Pursue. I'm not going to say have gifts because I don't necessarily believe that people have gifts, but they pursue those things intensely uh, that that they find super engaging. That also bring them a sense of well-being or joy or or just ex- human expression. Um, but I use the word gift for a number of reasons. A number of years ago, I had gone up to visit my mentor from college, and. Uh, he was he was the head of the English department at Kenyon College where I went to school, and I was the editor of the Kenyan Review, uh, kind of a very well respected literary journal. And at this point, he had gone up to Vassar, and much closer to where we are here in New York. So I went up to visit he and his wife. And at one point, he asked me a question. He said, "You know, are you doing any writing?" And I would never been a big writer, even though I was an English lit major. I said, "No, no, I'm kind of I'm doing a little like journal thing for myself, based on my mom's illness." And uh, he said, Ooh, can I, you know, can I, can I see it? I said, no, absolutely not. <laughs> like, you of all people, you know, because you have this critic's eye. Um, and he said, Joel, he's a wonderful guy, cajoled and teased it out of me. And finally I shared it with him and he called me and he said, Dan, I, I, want, I want you to come back up here. I think we need to talk about this. And it was a very, very raw, very, very vulnerable. It was basically a journal, but it had gone well beyond that. Explored well, much deeper than that. And so I went up there and he said, you know, this is very important. People need to read this. And I literally looked at him. I said, Ron, why the fuck would anyone want to read what I have to write about this ordeal, this experience? And he didn't try to push me into it. Uh, what he did instead was he, he recommended a book to me. And this book was called The Gift. It is still called The Gift. Uh, it, was by, it, it is by a man named Lewis Hyde, who had been a professor of mine at Kenyon. Um, but when I was there at Kenyon, we had studied a whole different topic. And so I picked it up and I read into it. And it basically is the question of how commerce affects art, right? When we create of our own need to create versus giving guidelines. But what it really was about was how do we share a gift uh, with the world? Because when we do that, that's when some of the most profound and beautiful and not necessarily beautiful, most profound and affecting art can happen. And I realized like that as I was going through this book, oh, Ron, he wanted me to read this because even as painful as this has been, this experience my mother, she was sick with eight diagnoses of terminal cancer over the course of 10 years. And she was my best friend. So we were, we were together through all this. You know, even as painful as this was, and as disturbing as many of these stories were, it would be a gift to others to be able to share that with them. Because just as now I realize, just as when I look at my classroom and say, who has been stressed out and the hands go up and they look around, I'm like, 
they're basically giving gifts to other people saying I'm being vulnerable enough to not to say I'm stressed out. And this would be, there's someone out there who's feeling like, like I am. Um, and just like my college students, like, Oh, look, I'm not alone. They, even if it's one other person who reads this and go, Oh my God, I'm not the only one who feels this incredible horror and nightmare and grief and pain. That's a gift to other people. So, you know, I, I look at that. And, and, but, and, and, and to add to that, knowing that I'm not alone, it was never about me, but being able to share that with other people and watch their relief also gives me a sense of community too. It goes, I, I knew I wasn't the only one because I've been going through this for a while, but it's, it's kind of a gift I get to give to people with no expectation of return. Just it feels amazing to watch other people sort of find relief knowing they're not alone. And so that's been really important. And I expect, and I've heard stories from lots of other, of my students and other clients that they then do the same. So, you know, from a professional perspective, I work with a lot of musicians and I was working with a group that I'll remain nameless, but a group of a very, very prestigious group of young performers. And I asked them who here has been, first I asked me the obvious question, getting comfortable. Who was totally excited when they got into this program? You know, everyone went out. What did you do? I ran to my parents. I, I jumped with joy. But then the follow-up question is, two minutes after you got that email or, or the phone call or two days or two weeks or two months, who here felt a little seed of nerves? Like maybe you weren't going to cut it or you couldn't make it there or, or you weren't good enough or you'd be too stressed out. And no one responded. I just waited. And then one hand slowly went up and then another one, hand went up. And then 11 out of the 12 people had their hands up. And, you know, and so afterwards, when almost all of them found me individually and said, I thought I was the only one, uh, the sense of relief was huge. And the theme throughout our, our time working with them and my time working with them over the course of a year, it still came back to that of I feel comfortable now, more comfortable knowing that my colleague on my left or right, they're stressed out too. They're anxious too. They're terrified in some cases totally terrified too and i've had some clients who are very who are who are very um distinguished performers um christine gerke comes to mind she's a she's one of, the, one of the foremost not the foremost dramatic sopranos in the world and she's said she's given me the okay to share this so yeah you should tell them you should tell the, the younger artists that you work with everything about me well you within limits Share that they that I that I was nervous. Share that I was scared. Share the struggles I went through, because then they go, "Oh my gosh, even she went through it." So to see their friends and colleagues go through it, and then to see their role models go through it, for her to be open enough to share it, um, I think is freeing for her. But is it gives a whole generation of new singers the okay that it's okay to be human being, right? And we have folks in our culture who are in some cases willing to talk about that. Um, and other folks who aren't, but those folks who are willing to talk about that, um, we, we you're, 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 what's it, Hudson, um, Hudson, Taylor, Hudson Taylor, for example, as an athlete. And I think now, you know, Kevin Love was one of the early folks who talked about depression as an NBA player. And then all of a sudden, what happened? Boop, 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 boop. All these other NBA players. Yeah, I've dealt with depression. Yeah, I have mental illness. Michael Phelps to say that he thought about self-harm, you know, suicidal thoughts. During the 2012 Olympics, if I, if I recall, when he was breaking the record for most medals, was also having suicidal thoughts. For him to come out and say, I have suffered from this, 
I think has opened up the world, uh, men, athletes, other human beings to go, me too. I'm not alone. Oh, he's gone for therapy. Oh, I can do that too. Okay. So I think that for me, sharing those things have been enormously important with my clients, with my students, with my friends. But I think we look around at folks who are role models for almost perfection. And then they go, guess what? Not only not perfect, I'm like, I have really struggled. Robert Downey Jr., J.K. Rowling, like all these people have talked about overwhelming depression. Oh, it's, it's possible to address these things. And then hopefully someone will turn to their friend and go, I got to tell you, a year ago, I was having suicidal thoughts. This is what I did where I was depressed. This is what I did. It gives them both the, the ability to take a deep breath and go, it's okay. And also gives them next steps to address that. So I think that is, that could be among the greatest gifts that we can give to anybody is the openness, the vulnerability. Because that's what changes the world is our ability to share those things. In addition to I'm the fastest swimmer on the planet. Okay. Well, I can't imagine a better ending to a show than that particular story. I just want to say, uh, Dan, I mean, obviously you're one of my, my dearest friends, I love you, but always when we talk, I'm amazed at how much, how much uh, information you can synthesize just by pulling out all those famous names of people who've actually talked. I mean, I know this is what you do. You talk about these subjects. So it, it, it just, uh, it's great to have, to have you on and, and talk to you in a different setting than we normally talk. I'm also just realizing we got to get together because I really miss you. <laughs> you do, man. Dude. <laughs> no, totally. I know. It's, it's a weird world right now. I mean, the fact that we haven't seen each other in a long time, and I bet there are a lot of listeners, and, you know, and, and Adam has these folks too, who, if it wasn't for social media, we would see them more often. But we sort of go, oh, we can text each other or we can jump on a, you know, uh, Skype call together. And that's wonderful. It's a bit of a Band-Aid, but it's wonderful. And yet we allow it to be much, to think of it as more of a Band-Aid. And so if we're out there listening, going, you know, I haven't reached out to someone and really seen them in a while. Uh, think about doing that. Instead of just texting them. Te instead of texting them, hey, I hope everything's great. Text them, what are you doing next week? But use social media for that reason, because it's a very different outcome. And one of the reasons I think we're suffering in this culture is because we don't spend together as humans, right? We evolve. Basically, look, until, until 100 years ago, the only way that we could really connect with each other was face-to-face. -face. Because most people are, yeah, you could write a letter if you were literate, which most people weren't, right? And so we've evolved over tens of thousands of years to look each other in the eyes, sit at the same table and go, you know, let's have a meal. Let's have a conversation. Um, I hope that more folks do that. Well, Dan, you and I need to go on a road trip and go out to Pittsburgh. And then I want to see where the two of you guys agree on to take me out for a drink. <laughs> you know, I think fortunately for all of us, Adam and I will have so many places that I think we'll agree and disagree on that we'll have to try them all. Right. And we can do a little tour of Pittsburgh and, and go from there. You know, and then at some point we'll stop for Manny's to get a sandwich and fries on it. But then we'll keep going. Oh yeah, far. <laughs> definitely, definitely. Well, Dan, it has been a pleasure having you on here. I have learned so much, and I cannot wait to uh, continue our conversations here. So, I'm going to go ahead and wrap up the show. This has been another episode of the Veer Vulnerabilis Veer podcast. 
I'm Adam Glinsky. I'm Albert Prada. And I'm Dan Lerner. Thank you for listening. <laughs>